Hello, welcome back to the David Watson podcast. Today I spoke with Martin, the author of Children of the Dying Her, fantasy novel that's going to be part of six book series, double trilogy, has some amazing epic characters. And one of the things Martin and I got into very heavily, which I really enjoyed, was the build-up and the journey of the characters and how it can reflect real life, which is what all good writing does. And I really hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Hello, welcome to the David Watson podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. And uh, as I said just briefly before we start, I am looking forward to this because I've discovered a word of something that I've no idea what it is. But before we get into my curiosity, uh, explain to people the book. Yeah. So um, Martin R. Nelson, uh, for those who didn't maybe read the title of the podcast and just clicked and started listening right away. Uh, the title of the book is Children of the Dying Hearth, um, and it's uh, a high fantasy, multi-perspective novel. It's the first in the series, uh, set to be six books, and as all those qualifiers uh, essentially boil down to, there's a lot to build up in this book. So going into each character in detail may take more time than we have, Um but at the core of it is this idea that regardless of who you are, of what stage of life you're in, whether you're a, uh, a young teenage boy setting out in the world and want to be a pirate, that's one of the main characters, a middle-aged uh, ruler, that's another one, um, yeah. or a 500-year-old elf, um, at the core of every one of these characters is a, a struggle to maintain or perhaps desire to be near where you're comfortable. It's this childlike aspect that you want to be where you feel at home. You want to yeah. be where it's safe. And ultimately they won't ever grow um, if they stay there. And it's this, it's the imagery of a child at a dying heart, the dying fire that it's what they know. It's what they're comfortable with. But at the end of the day, they need to go out into the cold, cold world and experience what's out there and push themselves. And for each of these characters, that's different. Um, for one character, it may be the opposite of another. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's about them getting out where they're uncomfortable, where it's uh, totally out of their comfort zone. And in order for them to really grow into the person that they want to be or that they need to be more importantly for the story, I guess um, they need to get out there. So that's in, in a nutshell, that's kind of what the the book is about that internal struggle between some very different characters. One of the things I was going to ask you about this, because and I've, I've made a little note on my sheet of paper and it, it's so the press release that was sent to me, one of the things that come through, and sorry if you can hear paper rattling about, it's my notes. It says, one of your book's messages seems to be about the human desire to stay where you are comfortable, but you believe mm -hmm. there should be a need to get out of that comfort zone in order to really grow as individuals. And mm -hmm. then the next bit is tell us about that. But the, the thing I, I wanted to know about is 
and I've, I've got to try and articulate this. So it doesn't sound clumsy. So if it comes across as clumsy, I do apologize. But it, it's like sometimes when we write books or write, we're, we're telling a story through characters, but we're really hoping you're going to listen to the lesson so that it, it won't, so that it'll impact you and you'll do something about your own life. So mm. why do you care about that? Um, part of the reason I care is because I'm a teacher. Um, and I see this every day with my students that, especially in the last couple of years, which has been uh, a little depressing, if I'm being honest, yeah. of the idea of students especially, but I see it with adults too, of they have a dream or a vision or a goal and they end up just wasting their time on the couch. And I mean, don't get me wrong, watching Netflix or playing video games on the couch, it can be inspiring. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to, for me, put pen to paper and write the book. Um, for someone else, it could be, you know, I want to lose some weight. I want to get in shape, whatever it is. Well, at some point, you need to stop watching YouTube videos about what exercises to do and actually go and do it. Um, and so I think part of that comes from me just being a teacher and just observing not just my own students, but also other adults just kind of complain about their lives. And it's, it's a, a, a mindset of, well, what are you going to do about it? Um, which I think there's a, a growing movement in the world now of that um, mm. growing popularity of different figures. David Goggins is one that oh, is massive, like, I, yeah. huge. get huge. off your butt, go do something, quit complaining. Yeah. Um, I'm not as brutal as David Goggins, especially not towards the reader, um, towards some of the characters that might have some brutality. Um, yeah. But it's, I really do hope, and this is also the reason why I classify this book as, as new adult rather than young adult. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, yeah. It's because the, the new adult is more geared towards that late teen, 16, 17, 18 at the earliest um, stages of life, because I really do want the reader to get that nuance. Um, I, I would love if it's just escapism. Um, if they get that from there, that it's, I went on an adventure. I had, you know, read about some romance and some political intrigue. That was interesting. But I don't want them to put the book down necessarily and be like, all right, blank slate, let's move on to the next thing. It would be, uh, I would feel very honored if readers read it and they really started thinking about themselves and kind of said, like, you know, maybe I should step out from under my parents. Yeah. Um, auspices so to speak um Faye, one of the the characters is a late teen half elf half human and she's that's very much her kind of struggle and her her hearth is her mom basically rules her life and she's she wants independence and i think anyone um <laughs> i think everyone at some point in their life goes through that sort of stage with their parents of like let me be an adult yeah. um and I think on the parent side, it's it's equally difficult to look at your kid and say, you are an adult, and I'm going to let you fail, succeed, whatever it is, but it's the, I have no control over your life anymore. Um, like both sides are very different. But. Yeah, because it, it is very hard, isn't it, when, when you're a parent and also when you observe your parents, because as a parent, you, you desperately don't want your children to, and I, I don't have kids, so, you know, I, I, of my own, 
but I see it around me and stuff where people that they're desperate for their children not to fail, not because they don't see the lesson in failing. They don't want them to feel the pain that they felt or the perceived mm. pain that they think they remember. So, so it comes from yeah. a really good place, but children haven't experienced that yet. So they don't understand why the parent is trying to do something good for them. They don't see it as that. They see it as interference. And then yeah. the other thing, I, and I noticed this in myself, and I had to observe this, especially towards, you know, like my father, where I, there was a point in my life, not that many years ago, I was in like my 40s, my mid-40s, and I realized that all of these things that I thought were my dad's faults were like, oh, no, he, he, he was just struggling with his own thing, but he happened to have three kids. <laughs> it, turn, it turns out that, that that's what that's what uh, life is. <laughs> there's a, a couple people in the field of psychology who have talked about that. It's like you you really become adult an adult when uh, you experience the death of your parents, and that's yeah. can be a figurative death where it's like, oh, you're a human, like yeah. you screw up just as much as me. This is weird, and then you realize their fallibility, and it opens up this whole kind of realm of like. The, I think some people in that field, there's kind of a God complex that the, the kids bestow on, upon the parents that you can't mess up. There's, and then when they, they recognize that, it's, it becomes a, a, a yeah, world-shattering moment. Yeah, well, my, mine came because me and my dad have never been close, and we, we don't speak, you know. And I was kind of, I think I was in a bit of an angry place, if you like. And then I suddenly realized, because I was having my own problems, and I was just like, Christ, I'm having my own problems and he and I was I'm twice his age when he had me and I'm still having problems so maybe mm -hmm. you know his life was quite difficult and I've just never really understood that <laughs> yeah um it's I mean really internalizing that that experience of the yeah. other I mean it's it's a real it's the true essence of empathy then and it is a real uh, real eye-opener because I was having a real difficult time yeah. in my life and for some reason I thought about my dad and suddenly thought, well, actually, maybe he didn't have the resources to deal with the things that mm -hmm. were going on in his life, and maybe he's not such yeah. a bad person. We just don't connect, and that, that's it's just that simple and not that personal. Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> recognizing uh, their own humanity, I think, is, is a big stepping stone for any uh, mm. child, which, again, the child can be 40 years old. It's just, I'm not saying there's yeah. any sort of infantilism or... Like you're a kid who hasn't grown up, but there's a, a real, um, and that's again, what, what the book is, is referring to with, with the children aspect is we're, we're all children in some way. Yeah. Um, we're all new to stuff. I think it's, it's funny. Um, <laughs> so I, I recently started, uh, this last year, uh, jujitsu mm -hmm. and as a 35 year old, 34 year old, I'll be 35 in a month. Um, being totally new at something where some 16 year old is just kicking your butt <laughs> is a very humbling experience. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there's, I was uh, just rolling with a guy last night at, at jujitsu and it was the first time he'd ever done something. And now I've done it for about a year. So I get a little bit more comfortable with it. And <clears throat> he was just struggling with it. And I, I asked him like, well, how many times have you done it? And he goes, well, this is like the fifth time we've gone through it. So five, it's like, well, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Why do you expect good? Like we're all children in some aspect of whatever we're new at, and um, so that's really kind of the the underlying basis of there's 
parts within the book where the, the title is actually somewhat referenced um, in relation to uh, other things. But the main takeaway from that title is that each of the characters really are children, just as everyone is. And yeah. it's accepting that and realizing I need to grow up. I need to push forward into this uncomfortable zone and whatever happens happens, but it's that push forward is what will help me ultimately, even if it might hurt at first. Um, that's you, what, that's what needs to be done. Did you find that because there's a lot of depth to the characters in, in the book and the, and it comes from a, a it's, it's fantasy, the right word, the right word. Is that, is it? Uh, for the genre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, do you find that because they're characters, did you find it much easier to ex explore things you wouldn't want to talk about from your own point of view, as if you were talking about yourself? So, do you know, I'll put it in this person and then I'll completely yeah. just yeah. go to town on it and say, no, it's nothing to do with yeah. me. It's just, it's just, just, you know, popped in my head. Yeah. A thousand percent. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, it's one of those things of, I mean, there's there's so many novels out right now that are um, they're they're fiction, yeah. But they're they're telling the story um, from a a black writer or a Latino or Latina writer or some um, different ethnicity about the struggle of growing up in some city or some town um, as a minority, right? As a straight white male writing about the struggles of a Puerto Rican immigrant in a heavy Cuban population part of Miami, I'm sure a lot of readers will go, what the hell experience do you have in this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the joy of writing fantasy, especially with these fantasy races like elves and dwarves, et cetera, is you can kind of boil that, um, that identity down to the human element rather than keep it as the, the Puerto Rican immigrant or the Cuban immigrant or the, um, the Chinese immigrant in LA who goes to a school district where there's, he's the only Chinese kid, right? Um, those are all fascinating stories, but the, the joy I think of fantasy is you can boil that experience down to a character that then every single minority can actually relate to, mm. which is, so Faye, for instance, is, is my example of um, she's half elf, half human, and she gets targeted for, for that. Um, she gets called derogatory names for it. There's um, She has her own ambitions, and she's very, very worried about, will this be allowed because I'm this kind of mixed race individual? And, I mean, that is in a way, the core struggle of a lot of these fiction books coming out of um, different authors talking about, like I said, the Puerto Rican immigrant, the Cuban immigrant, etc. So it's really enjoyable with fantasy because I can just kind of ignore the, the surface level race or ethnicity yeah. and say, let's actually deal with the human side of it. And it's, you feel isolated, you feel alone. You don't feel like anyone really understands you or sees you for what you can do and who you are as a person. They see you as just the image that they've cast upon you. Um, which again, straight white male. Uh, 
I'm sure there's many people who say, what experience do I have with this? Um, and uh, oddly enough, I do have some. <laughs> um, well, well, my... I mean, you've traveled all over Europe doing various yeah. things. So you can't tell me you never run into problems. So I, I live in England. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I, and my, I'm, I'm, my mum's an Irish immigrant right in the height of mm -hmm. the Troubles who married a British soldier. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So people say, oh, you don't know yeah. about racism. <laughs> really? You should have tried being yeah. from an Irish family in England yeah. when, when the IRA were blowing yeah. up the UK. When your dad's yeah, in the Yeah, I'm army. sure you got it from both sides, too. Yeah, yeah. The, the Irish, yeah, what is she doing marrying a, a, a oh, Brit? Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. And when we yeah. used to go home to Ireland, don't tell anyone what your dad does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, with me, it was, it was an odd bit with, uh, with soccer, actually, because uh, I was trying out for various teams. I used to play semi-professional um, oh. soccer in, in Europe. I traveled all around, um, visited Romania and Spain and Portugal with, with different teams. I ended up – Spain was a lot of fun because I got trained with uh, Valencia and their coaches. Nice. Uh, fantastic training grounds, which is totally eye-opening as an American yeah. from small-town Oregon, right? <laughs> nice part of Spain as well, Valencia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were there during a music festival, too, which was, oh, again, 19 as a music festival. I'm like, I'm supposed to be here for soccer, but you were living oh. a dream. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really want this to succeed. Um, I ended up in Germany and was playing in uh, lower divisions. And uh, I, I got the just the blunt reply one time when me and a couple other guys were trying out for a team. And one of them got a, a callback, which some of the other guys were like, that seems weird. Um, because him and I were playing in the same position, and it was, it was well, why why did he get picked? It's like I don't know, I wasn't good enough, and that's my kind of mindset towards it. And one of the Germans actually said, "No, it's because he's black." And I was like, "Huh? Like what? What do you mean?" And he said, "The coaches feel that he has therefore more potential to grow." It's like, oh, all right. And I mean, I, I could have very easily just said. Like, there's discrimination, I'm done, you know, I want to talk to the coaches, throw a huge fit. And instead, I basically said, I need to be that much better. I just, I need to make sure there's no room for any sort of, well, what, what aspect do they have that's not quite so um, nuanced or surface level, whatever you want to call it. And I upped my training regimen after that. Unfortunately, some stuff happened back home, which meant that I had to kind of end that uh that dream of playing soccer um but it, it really having that that mental shift one the the idea of being discriminated against because of race was a yeah as a white person it's, it's you don't see necessarily the the blunt value of it especially in america um or the the blunt kind of not value, well, i think blunt, one of uh, the problems that people have in america and it's difficult to say this without sounding disrespectful they're quite insular and don't really understand that the rest of the world has quite a lot of prejudice in it for lots of different reasons. And that if you go yeah. to Europe, which is predominantly white, you'll be amazed how many white people hate other white people. <laughs> and they have a thousand yeah. and one reasons why they don't like the white people from yeah. that country. And, and this idea that white people only hate people who aren't white no and the same as if anyone knows anybody from the continent of africa they'll be surprised how many africans hate each other from different countries yeah and if you go to yeah. eastern europe former yugoslavia countries they fiercely hate each other you know and they're all white mm -hmm. 
And it's like, why do you hate yeah. that person? Because we were at a civil war with them 20 years ago or 30 yeah. years ago. And if you go to certain parts yeah. of Spain, someone independence and, and they hate each other, you know? And yeah. well, you, you'd know from Germany, Germany can be, you know, I've got friends who live in Munich, yeah. the Bavarian area, and uh, they might not be so yeah. fond of other parts of Germany. And, uh, you know, there's a lot yeah. of rivalry. Yeah, there's a, I actually have a funny uh, story about that from my time in grad school. I, I went to Fordham University uh, for my master's in history uh, in New York. And uh, I was at a, a, a gathering, we shall say, of other grad students. And um, one of them was a speech pathologist. And she was making the case that um, standardized tests in English are racist because uh, English is a language geared towards uh, white people. And um, she she also made a case about, uh, she, she made this claim that white people don't have to struggle with teachers mispronouncing like kids' names. And I looked at her, I was like, you've never met anyone from Poland, have you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like good luck pronouncing a Polish name if you don't speak Polish. Um, or Greek, or Yugoslavian, or yeah. a lot of the Eastern countries yeah. have, uh, I mean, I was in Romania for a bit, and it took me a little little time to get some of the yeah, yeah. the differences with just the yeah, basic just, yeah, English alphabet. Yeah, well, because they have a different alphabet, don't they? They um, The Greeks uh, have their own alphabet. The, the, former Greece, Uber, the former USSR countries have their own alphabet. It's uh, uh, We're phonetic, most, I think. They have like, the 31 most, letters. We have 26. Um, so when I was in Romania, they used the okay, yeah. alphabet. Yeah, there, there wasn't much different other than uh, the C with a little squiggly bit on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's the same as like German with the umlauts over the, the U yeah. or the O. Like, there's little differences, but there, it's not a totally different thing. Um, but Polish has that like L with the cross through it that... Every time I see that, I have to look up how to pronounce it. Um, yeah. So it's it's a uh, and it is, there's it's like, these misconceptions that people have, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and it's funny because there, there's something you you talk about that in in the book about the prejudice that you have in the world of fantasy. And it was only yeah. I, I thought about that when I was going through the notes, and I was just like, do you know what? I, and I, and it's going to sound really dumb, right? But I suddenly like realized and joined all the dots because. Every sci-fi, every fantasy I've ever read, I suddenly realized how much racism is in them. <laughs> it's, do you know what I mean? it's like elves will hate dwarves. Dwarves will hate, yeah. you know, the, do you know what I mean? But I, I've never joined the dots and saw the connection between, oh, oh yeah, this is mirroring human life, isn't it? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, well done, David. Yeah. You, you're 49. You've just figured that out today. Well done. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, going back to Tolkien, he's the oldest example, right, of, oh. of the dwarves hate the elves and everything. Um, there's a little less of that in mind. Um, there's some distrust between the different races. Um, so it's less overt than, than other fantasies will be. But it's, it is, I mean, it reflects human nature. Of, yeah, of course. Like, our side is the best. We have the best stuff. And your side, which is different than ours, how do we see that you, why do you even like that? We don't get it. And then their side says, well, we have our thing. It's the best. And we don't get your thing. Um, and I've tried to temper that a little bit um, more towards the kind of distrust side rather than the open animosity of elves don't like dwarves. Um, so, for instance, one of the 
two of the, the leaders, uh, they're called Pentarchs in, in the book, uh, the five leaders of the crux, which is the city at the center of the world that joins all four continents. Um, one's an elf and one's a dwarf. And uh, because the dwarf, Thena, is she's actually away for this whole book. Um, she makes an appearance. She is one of the narrators, actually, in the second book, which I'm currently editing um, and working through. Uh, there's no real animosity between them. Um, it, it's very much a, I want to do what's best for my people, but I don't like hate you or anything. It's I'm going to do what's best for, for my side. You do what's best for yours. We'll meet at some compromise and that's kind of it. Um, which, uh, I don't think is a bad way to kind of live life. If, if you want to preserve separate cultures, um, you have to have some uh, some survival instinct towards your culture if you want to preserve it. Like, I want to do what's best for for. We we're just talking about Romanian Yugoslavian, yeah. right? If Romanian culture wants to stay Romanian, they need to have some sort of uh, push towards keeping it around and not having it self preservation. Yeah, yeah. if, if, if I want to live the life my grandparents lived. It's self-preservation, yeah. <laughs> and and, and yeah. it's 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 not always. I mean, look, we, we live in a troubled world right now. I mean, mm -hmm. politically, lots of people are upset, and and again, and it's it's difficult to cover it because it's very complex. But when I look at it generally, it, it, and when I say it comes from a place of fear, I, I'm not trying to belittle it because I suffer from the same problem. But mostly, it's because I'm being told I have to respect. A person entering my country, but they don't have to. I don't feel they have to respect me now. Where, how right or wrong yeah. that is, is is open for debate. I'm just being honest about how it makes me feel. Isn't <laughs> you know? What I mean? Yeah. And that's where, like yeah. I said, as somebody who I have dual nationality, I'm both. Brit I hold British passport and an Irish passport, and you know, and my dad is British, my mum is English, uh, Irish. Sorry, and so I'm aware of, of two countries that are at each other's throat. I, uh, you know. And and still a lot of animosity between between them in certain parts of of the countries, but I can't split who I am to take a side if I wanted mm -hmm. to, and that's where things become complicated. For 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 every person in every genre and yeah. every book in every nationality, you know, fiction and reality mm -hmm. is you know, like yeah. you said, one one of your characters is is half elf, half. Forgot was he? She was half elf, human, half human. Yeah, it's just like right. Well, what do you want me to do? Split myself in the middle, and who gets to have right. which part? Yeah, and that's. I mean, in in terms of the real world consequence, though, I don't, I don't think there there needs to be an issue with it. Um, this is one of the things that um, I, I've actually gotten into with with my students a bit. Um, so I teach history uh, and Latin at the high school level, and. Um, one of my classes is a, an ethics class because what, it started out as actually a history of torture. Uh, yeah. But it, it was a, a neat vehicle to actually explore the history of ethics um, throughout the world. Uh, and I think the one of, one of the things that we, we get to is the, the concept of the kind of American dream where it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, you can kind of make it here, right? You can fulfill whatever part of your identity that you want to build up and be who you want to be. And 
that's a very uh, multicultural uh, accepting ideal. And I think it's great, but it needs to have the underlying uh, kind of rule that, which is, is almost more of a libertarian side of things of you do your thing and I'll do my thing and we don't interfere with each other. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that um, with, with a place that has a, 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 a fairly well-known history like England, right? I mean, going through grad school for medieval history, it seemed like nine out of 10 of the medievalists were British historians. <laughs> um, there, there is a rich history there. I mean, there's also rich history in America that is native focused. And I don't see why native American culture can't coexist next to kind of more modern Western American culture of New York city with, um, with tribal leaders, tribal councils, et cetera, um, on their traditional lands. Um, it, but it needs to come from a place of kind of live and let live, which to me was, was the core of that American dream of like, you do your thing and I'll do mine. As long as we're not harming anyone, like let's just. Well, I think that's probably where the problem with, I think it's the problem or the most obstructive part of the rise of the internet is pre-internet we were much more community-based and community-focused and Mm -hmm. national issues and global issues were not something you could get a feed on 24-7 or have an opinion on that you could share like we couldn't do this you and I would not know the other guy existed and yeah and the bonus of where we are today is you and I can have a conversation. The downside of where we are today is you and I can hate from each other, from the other side of the world about a country we don't even live in. <laughs> yeah. We have an opinion about it. And I don't think we're old enough as as a community globally to understand how to handle that. I, you know, I think, I don't even think we've got out of the diapers and the nappies yet. You know, we're still breastfeeding. We really don't know yeah. how, how to navigate it. And and what that yeah. navigation should mean or look like, because we haven't even taken yeah. first, first steps in it. And you know, if I could go back just twenty four years back to two thousand, and I was living in a house, I, I I didn't really know anything about America other than what was on MTV, and mm-hmm. I, I thought it was everything was pretty cool about that. And I think one of the things that's changed that's changed dramatically is people are trying to dissect history as if history did something wrong instead of no history is Mm. just a recording of history is recording the reality at that time and Mm -hmm. no matter what your opinion about it is 200 years later or 500 years later no no one actually Mm. cares because it was 500 years ago and that it's it's that simple and regardless of what your opinion is we there doesn't seem to be any learning on like you you shouldn't be getting angry about the way a community was treated 500 years yeah. ago and i mean yeah it's a slight set digression but i was doing something the other day on a radio show called a pointless fact and i was talking about how pork pig is not is the animal and pork is the meat and uh cow is the animal and beef is the meat and that's to do with the fact that when we got 
invaded by the Normans in 1066, they were French. And because they all spoke yeah. French, and the Anglo-Saxons all spoke a, an English that nobody would understand today, to be fair, they mm -hmm. didn't actually cross over with each other because poor people, the commoners, didn't eat pork and didn't eat beef. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's why chicken is still chicken. That's why fish is fish. And what was, <laughs> there was another, you know, and there's all these weird things because it's actually the class system. So whenever mm -hmm. it appears to be that whenever the animal is called different to the meat, it's because rich people ate it and poor people didn't. And because yeah. the French ruled the UK or what became the UK and the Anglo-Saxons were taken over. And, you know, and that's hence the reason we were fighting with the French for so many years, because it was weirdly the French fighting the French, but from England. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just like, that's, that's history. That that's how it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, it's funny with the internet age, because it's, to me, it's really, uh, blown up the Dunning-Kruger effect of people really feel like I'm an expert in this. Mm. And despite and they're so insular with their own experiences, all they do is they read about it from one perspective or another. Mm. And it, it becomes, especially when, when it comes to people versus people interaction um, or people-people interaction. Um, it's, we're taught to fear a group of people or hate a group of people. And it's like, well, have you ever, have you ever met one of them? Yeah. And if you have, do you feel like that is a accurate depiction of the totality of them? Um, and it's, I, I kind of have this, this, this mindset of the, the, the person, I don't have this mindset. I have this image of the, the kind of person in your hometown who's, they have an opinion on everything, but, they've lived in the same house they grew up yeah. in and they worked in the same town. They haven't gone anywhere. And it's, I'm not trying to belittle or demean anyone who hasn't gone out and traveled the world, but I think a, a healthy spoonful of humility is needed mm -hmm. in the area of, I mean, international politics, like you said, it, it, it used to be in the age of paper and radio of, Oh, the Germans have invaded Poland. It's like, oh, they have. Yeah. Oh, I guess we hate the Germans. Um, yeah. Which then gives everyone an opinion on it. Um, at the same time, it does. I think that there's uh, everything's a two-sided sword. Um, it has allowed for greater information, especially with the whole citizen journalist movement. Of everyone is a journalist when they take out their phone, they record something, and they yeah. say, "The media is telling us one thing, but this." video clearly shows that's not true um that's been a game and changer. that yeah th that is i mean for for all the the harm that media has done there's or technology you could say has done there's there is like the double-edged sword there's a, a give and take that this really has helped balance things which i think there's a growing movement now um the one of the stories that i'm always fond of is the the story during world war one when the the germans and the uh the allies got out of their trenches during Christmas, Christmas day, and they yeah. played a game of a soccer, a football. And it it's a idea that like we're we're all kind of brothers and sisters on this planet. Yeah. Like why are we trying to kill each other? <laughs> um It's also stories and, like that also sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Good, good. Stories like that always leave me with hope. Because mm -hmm. in the darkest literally in that case, the darkest trenches, they were like, look, 
if there's one day that we're not going to do this, it has to be Christmas Day. Yeah. And and they got out, shared cigarettes, shared food, had a game of football. Yeah. Uh, soccer. Yeah. Sorry, America. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and do you know yeah, what I mean? And it's just like, there's hope. In that. Yeah. It's, I think, though, the, the courage to do that, to stand up to mm. your superiors, your officers, and say, I'm not going to go shoot at that trench. I mean, I... Imagine the balls on those guys that first stood up out of the trench and said, I know everyone who's gotten it before had their head blown off. I'm going to get up. And, and I mean, it could have been an officer waving a, a little flag saying, we want to just parlay and talk yeah. and then say, hey, you want to have a game of footy? <laughs> so, and, I mean, I mean that just, could happen. That's Even a good point. Go, you the can... superiors to say, like, no, that's your enemy. You want to kill them. Um, yeah. that, that comes from a place of getting out of where you're comfortable. Um, and if the courage to, to do that to stand up, kind of the courage to stand yeah. up from that trench, the first person who did it, and just say, "Look, yeah, just just literally in this case, hold fire. And let's just take yeah. a time out. Yeah. Christmas Day. Do you want a yeah. cigarette? You know, do, do you want a piece of cake? It, it's just and, and and I remember reading some stories about it because they used to teach us this in history in England at school when I was at school. I don't think they do it anymore. Um, could be wrong." But the, some of them exchanged photos of their wives or girlfriends back home. Do you know what I mean? And there was, there was this weird, like, I suppose making it human. It's like, hey, you know, mm -hmm. with, with the same guys, yeah. with the same people. But it's interesting you said about the citizen journalism because it made me think about, I think that's probably one of the problems we're having with the media is the very foundation mm -hmm. structure of the media has always been, we will tell you what's happening. And mm -hmm. people turn up with their phones like that's not what happened, and they're like, "No, we're telling you it did." And like, no, no, there's 20 people here who filmed it themselves, and they don't seem to have adjusted to we have to tell the truth yet. Yeah, and that's um, I think this is one of the scary things uh, about AI is it's becoming so advanced that they can yeah. fabricate things. On the flip side, though, is if the kind of citizen journalist movement keeps up. And they say, well, your image is clearly doctored. Yeah. Um, these five phone recordings aren't. Um, that's when it, there, there's, there's a battle going on for truth. <laughs> that yeah. sounds very you know, no, grandiose. It is, it? It, it's, I'll tell you, though, because like, like bringing it back to, to the books as well and, and, and the whole genre of sci-fi, fiction, mm -hmm. fantasy, it's always, it always is some some group who are just trying to get to the truth and let everyone else know what the truth is you know it's, it's yeah. always like you know what it's the little guys versus the big guys you know it's it's the working classes versus the rich it is you know it's always yeah. them versus us versus them but there's always this justice mm -hmm. for truth at the heart of it all mm -hmm. or if it's not truth it's it's all there's the idea that even if if your life is tough and you struggle yeah. you want it to be fair you don't want the system to be rigged against you uh, which is i think something that a lot of people there's a, a, a heavy push now towards uh the kind of far left movement there's a romanticization of marxism for oh, i see yeah. it in my high school kids and i ask them usually I'm like well have you read the communist manifesto and they go no it's like well then 
I mean, yeah, you know, no, different no. than a Bible hasn't read the Bible. Like, a, mm. <laughs> you're professing a faith and a belief that you don't know anything about. Um, but there's this there's this movement towards that. I feel like because there's there is a lot of um, underhandedness in our society that isn't necessarily indicative of the system being a problem, but certain people have climbed to the top of that system, the kind of crony capitalism, the corporate structure, whatever you want to call it, where companies buy out competitors. I think of yeah. Amazon years ago bought out diapers.com. Um, but they didn't buy them out. They, they uh, I don't want to be sued for libel. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, they, marked all their diapers on Amazon down to where they're yeah. losing money off of them yeah. because they want to drive diapers.com out of business. And it's like that. Can we at least have a fair competition? Cause I mean, it's, you don't want to enter a game of soccer and the ref says, by the way, you're going to lose. I don't care what you do. It just, it defeats the soul of the player of the game. So, mm-hmm. and I think there's a big feeling of that amongst uh, a large swath of the Western population that, of like, I feel defeated. Yeah, that that's still a big problem in the UK with rich supermarkets where they'll they'll lose money on something so that someone else yeah. can't compete with them, and you just you know, and like yeah. you say, there's just nowhere, and and then announce you know billion pound profits, and you're just like, come on, you, you've you've just put a hundred independents out of business just just so you can yeah. make a few more a few more dollars, a few more pounds, whatever, and you just like, and like you say, it's yeah. that. This isn't fair, and you, you don't yeah. even know one of these one hundred independents. It didn't matter to you. It was just a number on an accounting sheet, and you were like, "Look, we yeah. lost one and a half percent of sales. To mm-hmm. how, how do we get them back? Oh, we'll put a hundred yeah. independents out of business and ru- yeah. ruin a hundred households across a yeah. hundred towns in the country." And it's like, what? yeah. So, so that you you can have a bigger mansion, it's just like you yeah. already own a hundred acres on a private island. What what's what actually yeah, more do you right. need from life? Yeah, what do you need? What do you need more of? Uh, which uh, makes me think of um, got the oil barons in the U.S. Because uh, there was uh, I keep blanking on his name. I, I brought this up to a, a friend the other day as well. He uh, oh the Morgan J.P. Morgan yeah. Um, it's, I mean, for all the, the cronyism that the oil barons did in America, um, there the a couple of them got to a point where they said, "I'm so rich, I I don't know what to do with this," and so they started giving back to the people. Mm. They started making museums. They started, I mean, the the Morgan Museum is one of my favorite museums in New York because it's it's his old house that's now just a massive library. They had a, a Tolkien exhibit when I was there um, last, and it. It's just a gorgeous kind of smaller museum in New York, but it, it's indicative of that kind of, there, there's a lot of, I mean, we can, we can sit here and, and talk about the, the terribleness of, of billionaires and we wouldn't be the first to do it. At the same time, there's a number of them who have kind of got to that point. They, what do I do with this? Yeah. What is the point of this? Um, because those I, I, original guys that you were talking about, that philanthropy that came, because yeah. there, there's, if you look at a lot of the old cities and towns in, in Great Britain, there's this philanthropy from hundreds of years ago where they were like, oh, hang on a second. Yeah. I don't need this. What I, what I do need yeah. to do is set up a children's home. And Dr. Bernardo's was a guy that set up a children's home and became a, a national charity. 
And but there's all these, like you say, museums, parks, you know, mm. hospitals yeah, and hospital. everything. Yeah. And and the funny thing is, is back then they didn't do it as a tax write-off. <laughs> they were just like, yeah. no, do you know what? I actually have too much money. I'm going to yeah. give it back to somebody and do yeah. something good with it. And it, it would be nice yeah. if we got back to a place where that's a thing, where not, oh, how much can I write my taxes off if I do this? It's just like, do you know what? I, yeah. I don't need, yeah. I have a billion. I don't need the other hundred billion. But maybe, yeah. you know, I'll do something with it. Yeah, yeah, it it would be nice. Um, and I think in order for that to happen, there needs to be a bit of a kind of cultural push towards um, kind of immortalizing the self in the eyes of the people. Yeah. Um, as as a so I, I like I said I teach medieval history but I also teach Latin and we get a fair amount of Roman history with that and the Romans were fantastic with this of of putting state I mean you could call fascist if you want of saying like what I do is for the glory of Rome and yeah. so having that kind of cultural push of like yeah I've got millions billions of dollars whatever it is but I want people to remember my name because I I was it Augustus uh, found the city of rock and he turned it into marble, right? There's that whole thing. He turned the form into marble. So people remember him because all the buildings are a lot nicer because of him. Um, if the hospitals got fixed up because uh, a billionaire's got too much money, that, that sort of cultural push, um, I think is, is where that will happen. Um, of, of wanting to kind of immortalize yourself. Um, yeah, but there's a sense, there's a nice in that, like, do it for the you know the glory of Rome. That there's, yeah. and it would have to be monitored if you like. But there's a nice sort of sentiment, sentiment, sentimentality to the nationalizing. You know, like I'll be nationally proud of my country. You know, like you know, like make um, yeah. you know, America. Do you know what I mean? The land of the free, the land of opportunity, and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. The, the, the the sentiment behind it was one of its sort of driving forces that made mm -hmm. everybody feel like they could have an opportunity just by getting off the boat. If I can get off the boat yeah. and, I, and I can do this, I have an opportunity. I have a chance. Mm -hmm. And I think it's yeah. that hope versus hopelessness that was, yeah. was the difference, you know, whether it was always true yeah. or that, you know, that's, you know, the reality of life is two people see reality differently and both are true. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's there. If there's a a cultural shift towards towards hope, that'd be really nice. Yeah, because um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, especially with I mean my students, I, I see it all the time of just kind of a uh, almost why bother sort of mentality. Um, and it, again, getting back to uh, somewhat the book of just saying, why do I want anything difficult? I'd rather it be easy. And it's it's such a toxic mentality yeah. that's being cultivated, um, which, um, I mean, it, it's and there's there's a give and take with this because you have uh, certain things out there you want to have a, a programs in place to help the needy and help the poor. At the same time, there needs to be some struggle in your life for you to kind of push forward. Um, there's the, the kind of apathy or depression. Um, that I see a lot of, uh, one of my really good friends is born and raised in, in Juarez, Mexico, which is 
one of the roughest parts of the world. Um, the gang violence there is, is very extreme. He got out when he was about 11, 12, and he moved here. Um, and him and I have talked about the same sort of topic before of like this hopelessness, depression. And we both kind of settled on the idea that it really is a first world problem. Oh, massively a because first world problem. When, you, when you're concerned about where you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep, are you going to get shot? Are you going to, you know, what's your goal is so focused in your mind of like, this is yeah. what I need to survive and I'm going to go get it or else I die. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a terrifying place to be in. Um, but it's at the same time, it can also be an extremely invigorating place to be as odd as that kind of sounds. No, but but it, um, it is that, that that's the point yeah. it, that your, your purpose becomes incredibly simple. It's, mm -hmm. you know, what, what am I going to do for the next 12 hours that gets me to, point that i can get to sleep tonight to wake up about tomorrow you're not worrying yeah. about whether or not you're going to afford that new car in six months from now you you, you know yeah. you're, you're not worrying about yeah. whether or not you're going to make vacation next year and if you don't what will your friends think yeah. of it that you couldn't afford to go on holiday yeah <laughs> you know I mean? you're like yeah right okay yeah what, what am i doing in the next hour that gets me to lunchtime and you're so in that moment yeah Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't yeah, want that, it. That, that actually, <laughs> happened it happened to me the other day because um, my wife and I are looking for a, a, another car. We we have one car, and since I go to work, she works at home, and we're uh, expecting in early April uh, our first Congratulations. child. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And um, so we're shopping around for a, a second car, so that way she has something to, to go around with. And I was sitting there just getting frustrated with the different APR rates and which sort of thing to look at, and I'm sitting there. And getting frustrated with it. And then I'm like, what am I frustrated with buying a new car? Like, what a privileged, <laughs> entitled position I have. Uh, and it's having that bit of self-reflection is is really nice. Which, again, which, I mean, back to Children of the Dying Hearth, it's, that's why I, I also classify it as new adult. It's, I yeah. do want the reader to have some self-reflection afterwards of, of saying, like, which of these characters am i um mm. and at some point you will be all of them i think um uh kel who's a an elven ranger over 500 years old right he's you may think of an elf as very learned and and uh knowledgeable about the world but because he's young for his race he only knows his homeland and so once he yeah. when he actually ventures out of that he's very much just like tessador the kid he's traveling with who's 16 and there's a, a moment where they're on a ship where they actually kind of look at each other and Tessa's like you're how old and you don't know this he's like well i've never left yeah. right and so that in a way kind of speaks to that that figure i talked about before of the guy who's never left his hometown who's worked at the same mill for 50 years and maybe 60 years old but he knows all about what's going on in uh the rhine region with immigration policy and it's like you you don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kel's a little bit more self-reflective than those individuals I've met, but it, it's... It's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because if, if elves were a real thing, and, like, they're, mm -hmm. literally they're a young adult at 500 years old, yeah. We, we, when you think about it in reflection, there would be an elf that has spent yeah. 1,500 years in his own town and never left. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. 
dude, this is 1,500 years. How did you not once just, well, I was worried yeah. about whether I'd get the rent paid. You were around for 1,500 years. <laughs> what was there to yeah. worry about? <laughs> well, and But yeah. there would be the and one, that's... you know, 500 years, there would mm -hmm. be like, oh, do you know what? I I'm going to venture out and be clueless because they've never done yeah. anything before. But they take yeah. those years for granted just like we do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's all relative, which one, that was one of the, my favorite things about writing that character is really kind of tooling around with that idea of, yeah, he's 500, 600 years old, but in relation to his race, I mean, uh, yeah. Lagul, who's the, the Pentarch from the West, he's an elf and he's over 5,000 years old. And so he's very much a elder in the community. Um, 500 though, it's like he's 14. Yeah. And it's, they only can leave the city in, in the book once they hit 200. At that point, they become rangers and they go out into the West. And it's basically kind of a, um, I stole some of it from different native traditions of kind of a spirit journey of you're, you're going yeah. out and you have to survive on your own. Like you're, you've come of age, you are now a man, right? And cultures used to do that at 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, I think we could benefit from that today. Uh, <laughs> that's a different conversation. Um, but for, for him, he's in his teens essentially. And it's, it's a fun idea to mess with of, yeah, he's 500, 600 years old, but he hasn't got a clue what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, just as the, the teenager you run into coming home from school, he may know exactly all the trends on TikTok. He may know exactly who, won the Arsenal-Chelsea game. He may know exactly who all the players are who were on the bench who didn't get subbed in. But does he have any idea what's going on in West Africa or Southeast Asia or Indonesia? No. Not, a, not a clue. No, no, not a lot. Um, just going back to something, which is what you and I spoke about before we started recording, Mm. The explain to me what that word is that I can't pronounce or that I only learned today. The so uh, there's there's actually there's two pronunciations for it, which is equally then frustrating. Um, so some people will call it the hagiographical society or hagiographical with a hard G. Um, I say hagiographical um, mainly because I don't have a, a heavy Greek background. Essentially, uh, so on on my resume, that's what you're reading from. For yeah. those that catch all that. Uh, I was a member of the Hagiographical Society, which my academic background, my undergrad background uh, is in pagan and Christian syncretism in the early Middle Ages, late antiquity range. So how paganism influenced Christianity. Um, and then my master's is a little bit more specific, uh, and that's on specifically St. Duke Canute Lavarth in Denmark and why the Royal Necropolis in the 12th century was moved from Roskilde to uh, Ringsdeath after he was assassinated, and basically concepts of sanctity in the High Middle Ages. The Hagiographical Society is just more or less the, the historical society associated with the study of saints. So mm -hmm. anything with the Greek hagios has to do generally with saints when you're when you're uh, dealing in a Christian context, the kind of exception there is the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, right? Um, 
Actually, sorry, that's not the exception. I mistranslated because Sophia's wisdom, Hagia is a saint. So it's the Greek word for saint, essentially. Yeah. Um, so that that's all that is. My academic background is in more or less Catholic history. Um, I'm myself not Catholic, um, but I've gone to Catholic school since I was in uh, sixth grade. So all through middle school, uh, high school, undergrad, and then graduate school, I was at some sort of Catholic institution studying the history of the Catholic Church. Uh, it's and, a fascinating history. Yeah. Well, my, my whole interest in it came from I, I, my mother's non-denominational Protestant. Um, and I was raised in a non-denominational household for the most part. And so I've always been interested and fascinated with Christianity the the church specifically to me is a study in human institutions and their tendencies um yeah so it, it it's almost like cultural or uh, historical anthropology that i enjoy of like wh why do we make these figures out of people that are very flawed um yeah the two saint olaf or saint olaf sorry not two of them two king olaf the but St. Olaf in Norway is a brutal dude. I mean, he dismembers people, cuts off hands when they disobey. And was like, why is this guy a saint? Um, yeah. And so it's something like how the institution of Catholicism and the church actively changed itself to incorporate different uh, cultures on its periphery so it could expand um, is kind of the core of that interest for me. Could, it, is, it is interesting, isn't it? Because there's lots of myth and legend around Catholic Church. Some of it, mm -hmm. no doubt, is rooted in truth. Some of it is just Dan Brown um, and the films that followed. It was, you know, <laughs> but again, th th those myths, I, th I think the thing that's hard for people to understand is that if, if it was possible to trace back myths and legends, you would find the root of the truth. But again, mm. is that going back to something we said earlier? Is we're looking at it from today's eyes and not from the eyes of somebody two thousand years ago. So yeah. a story told two thousand years ago probably doesn't mean how we've interpreted it today. Oh yeah, yeah, um, and all the stories that come up mm. through those two thousand years associated with it, um, and that's one of the things too with studying the Catholic Church is all the apocryphal gospels that come up. Um, those gospels that they chirped and they said, we don't want these in our canon. Yeah. And you read them and you say, oh, I understand why. Because it, it clearly makes the point that you don't need a priesthood. Yeah. Um, which the Catholic Church doesn't really want <laughs> no. to have. Uh, I, I read somewhere and I don't know. I read somewhere and I don't know how true this is. So please correct me if I've gone off on a tangent. That agnostic Christians and Christians and uh, Jewish, all of that at one point in time, lived alongside each other perfectly fine. And it was only as Christianity was growing and agnostics didn't believe, I think agnostics believed anybody could be, everybody was the child of God sort of thing. And the Roman Christians, if you like, were like, well, there can only be one son of God. And Constantine yeah. was like, yeah, well, I'm the emperor, so that must be me. So this is the this is the road we're going to go down. You know, yeah, I might have probably uh, oversimplified that. Um, quick little note, just on on the terminology there. Uh, 
it would be the Gnostic Christians, which is different than the yeah. agnostic. Yeah. Agnostic okay. is the basically not knowing is literally what it means. Of, there could be a God, there could not. The, the Gnostics were absolutely of the mindset that, yeah, we are all basically imbued with the spirit of divinity. That's what a soul is. Yeah. So the idea that you need someone to guide you um, or to, to bless you, I should say, you don't need that. A guide, sure. A teacher, absolutely. So within those early Gnostic uh, traditions, which it's unfortunate because most of what we have is written by polemicists, these people that hated the Gnostics and they wrote everything bad about them. Yeah. Um, so with that, you have to kind of read it and read in between the lines of like, what do the Gnostics actually believe? And I think the easiest way is actually to read the Gnostic Gospels. Um, so... Um, uh, and I encourage everyone to do they're now readily available. These are the Dead Sea Scrolls, essentially. Um, yeah, the Gospel yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I, I, it's a heavy point about this of, like, you don't need this. Because um, is that and, the Gospel and, of St. Thomas also? Yeah, yeah. So the Gospel of Thomas is, is probably my favorite because it makes this point so kind of uh, enigmatically, but clearly at the same time. It's, it's kind of odd. Um, but that's also the nature of Gnosticism. Yeah. Um, the, the concept, though, of, of the different groups living in relative peace, you, you have to remember Jesus was a Jew, so he yeah. wasn't setting out to start a new religion at all. He was He's like, we've become married to the law rather than um, filled up with the spirit of it, which is what he was then kind of preaching. One of my favorite parables is when uh, I think one of the Pharisees chastises him because it's the Sabbath and he's walking in a field and he just kind of plucks a little piece of grain. And the Pharisee says, ah, you worked. And it's like, <laughs> like you stiff necked fool. Like what are you, this isn't working. I'm enjoying the countryside. You, you've yeah. become too married to the letter of it that, yeah, I'm picking grain, but that doesn't mean I'm working on a Sabbath. Um, so, Christianity really started as that reform movement, um, which is also why a lot of Jesus's followers were considered zealots. They was these are these guys who like, we need to one overthrow the Romans, uh, but also like we need to kind of fix the issues of our own institution. Um, once Constantine gets involved, it becomes a little hazier, <laughs> and it becomes much more. Uh, aggressive towards each other, which Constantine's an interesting figure uh, because I'm very firmly of the mindset he was not uh, Christian in any way. He was the Edict of Milan, which he helped pass uh, with his fellow rulers. Basically says, pray, it's pray to the whatever supreme godhead, that's the wording they use, um, you want. It makes a note afterwards about if lands were taken, churches were taken from the Christians, they need to be returned because that was wrong. But in terms of saying Christianity is legalized, he's saying every religion is legalized. Pray to whoever you want. It doesn't matter. Um, he was a big proponent of the Mithraic cult, which the uh, the army was predominantly of the Mithraic cult. The No kind of question why is because uh, Mithras was called the the unconquered son. And so, I mean, it's the same reason that soldiers today might get a, uh, a cross tattoo or a Templar tattoo or some sort of thing of like, I'm going in, no one can kill me. No one can harm me. I'm unbeatable. You're going to follow. I mean, 
before Mithras, it was Mars, right? You pray to that yeah. God that like he's going to protect me. I'm invincible. Um, so, and, and Constantine was also baptized by uh, one of the Arians, which the whole Council of Nicaea was basically the start of the Catholic Church saying, what do we actually believe? Is Jesus part of God? Is he the son of God? What is it? And the Arians were saying he's the son of God, which makes him sort of a demigod. And the Catholics were saying, no, it's it's the Trinity, the three in one, begotten, not made, all of that. And it was uh, one of the Eusebiuses, and I always mix them up, but it was the Arian one who ended up baptizing Constantine. So in terms of like a good Catholic Christian, there's no real evidence for that. <laughs> um, but it, it makes a lot of sense for the Catholics to write the story of like, yes, yeah. the emperor sat in on our council and he blessed this. It's like, well, I mean, if he wants, I mean, he may have been there, the, but that doesn't make him Catholic. It makes him interested in the politics of his empire because he wants to make sure that these groups that are growing exponentially aren't killing each other. I've read that somewhere that actually his, his main goal was he didn't care. What he wanted was yeah. peace. And whatever yeah. way we can get peace, that's what we'll do. Yeah, he was uh, he was a fantastic politician. He, the reason we have the Christians have the Sabbath on Sunday is because of him. The reason it's spelled the way it is is because the, the original Latin was dies solis, which is the day of the sun, as in the thing shining in the sky. And the sun was representative of Mithras, okay. that cult that army was a part of. So he basically made this day of the sun a uh, kind of weekly Roman holiday, which then allowed the, the growing Christian movement to kind of move that slightly over, just kind of move the goalposts a bit. Like, yeah, Saturday, Sunday, what's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> um, we all get a holiday then anyway, so might as well take that day off, um, which is why the Jews still celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday. It, they've followed that old tradition and they haven't given that up. And that's the kind of reason why Christians yeah. follow Sunday. It's because it's originally for the God of the Son. How much of this do you think influences the writing? All of it. <laughs> oh. um, yeah. Uh, so the world of Tesserus, which is the, the fantasy world for children of the dying hearth, it's influenced by especially that, that undergrad background in late antiquity. Um, yeah. I really want to go for this this imagery of a crumbling empire or an empire that has crumbled and we're kind of living in the skeleton of it. Um, and it, I really wanted to, to bring about that feel of, do you know you're in a collapsing civilization? Or do you know you're kind of not in the height of your own civilization? Mm. Um, I don't think a lot of people do recognize that as it's happening. Um, there's a lot of things coming out now of people saying, like, do you think the Romans, like, knew they were uh, yeah. falling, right? And uh, people will reply to this of, feels kind of like now. So I don't think they do. <laughs> um, so the, there, there's different structures throughout the world that represent the kind of old empire that used to rule all of Tesserus. Um, and that's very much modeled after Rome. Um, but the main city, the crux, has a lot of architecture that's based off of that late antiquity um, imagery. And it, it has the, the feel that the old empire is gone, but we're still living in its 
remains. So we're kind of the inheritors of it and we're, we're doing just as well. There's, there's no big difference between us. Um, the, the idea of the, the Pentarchs, um, that's very similar to Constantine actually with the, the Tetrarchy, the rule of four that when the empire was split up into the four rulers, um, this is, I've, I've changed it around a little bit because in, in children of the dying heart, it's much more, um, instead of being displaced at different palaces all throughout Europe, the, the five rulers are more representatives of their continents and their homelands. Um, so there's four main continents and then there's a Pentarch from the city itself. Um, but that is definitely drawn from that historical background of what do you do with, with a very large city? How do you run it? What would be a, a kind of natural way to do it? Um, especially since the, the city itself, it's where the four continents meet. Um, so it would likely be highly contested. And yes. uh, it, it was way before the story, um, which there's, there's other stories. There's which one of the really fun parts about writing is these kind of tangential stories of myth, folk, folklore, all that sort of stuff coming up with the different cosmology of it. Um, and so the city was contested at one point and it went back and forth. And eventually the continents kind of agreed, let's share it as kind of this hub. And it grew more and more out of that. Um, and that that's all drawn from, from my own historical background, um, studying medieval Europe during the Middle Ages, but also late antiquity, that 200 to 800, depending on who you ask. I like to put those ranges because that was one, the first range I saw when when late antique when I started studying late antiquity, um, but also it covers a little bit more than ranges that other people put. So, absolutely, it influences it. So, you you said there was six. This is one of six, and you're mm -hmm. editing the second now. Yeah. Does that mean you already know how number six ends? Yes. <laughs> Um, and this is, uh, I've actually, I sat on this book for about eight years before I published it. Um, and part of that was just because life got in the way. Um, yeah. it's, I started writing it when I was in Germany and I was training a couple times a day, um, trained with a team that I trained by myself, vice versa. And is I have a ton of time, so other than doing Rosetta Stone and learning German, it's let's write a bit, let's get into the fantasy world, because I've always enjoyed creating um, kind of fantasy things, whether it's maps or, or little stories, whatever. Um, the, the full story is hashed out in its main points. Um, the nuances of each little character change, character journey, etc. Um, that is not. And the reason I sat on this for a while is one because I wanted to finish it in terms of editing, and I, excuse me, get to a point where I'm happy with the content and the story, the the character arcs and development and everything. But I also wanted to finish writing the second book, um, right. in a rough draft form. Because then it allowed me to basically look at the second book and kind of the nuances of what I needed to have there and say, you know what, this would actually be really good to include back here. 
and then I can add a couple lines in rather than going, oh, crap. Uh, would have been really nice if I mentioned that in the first book because now this is just going to feel like a deus ex. And, well, where did these guys come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I, I don't want that to happen at all, which is – so the second book is, uh, for the most part, content-wise finished. Um, I don't think I'll be adding anything significant to it. Um, I'm having a couple people look it over for editing. Um, there's already one thing that I need to fix with it that I, it's kind of on the to-do list. Um, but that I won't, uh, I would like to have it be out by the end of this year. Um, and part of the reason for that is because I'm halfway through the draft for the third book. And so oh, having so you're really, of, really quite far ahead. Yeah. Um, and so the, it, it, in a way, it's kind of designed as two trilogies. Um, the full thing is called The Annals of Tessian, and you kind of find that out why in, in the second book. Um, but the, the core elements of those first three are, are pretty much hashed out. The, the next three, or I should say the, the nuance points of the first three are more or less hashed out. Um, the next three is just the big bullet points of the character needs to go from here to here to here in terms of their development, this is the main uh, kind of emotional or physical journey that they need to go through. And this is where it ends. This is kind of the point of the whole book. This is the point of the second series. That That's all more or less hashed out. Um, but it's those fine nuanced points that I haven't got to that because I haven't written it yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. So I'm going to finish up with a really random question, which is a question I just like to ask people. Um, and it, it will fit you well because it, it requires a lot of imagination. So Ooh. imagine a fantasy world where you can time travel, right? Mm -hmm. You can go anywhere in history that you want to go. Where are you going to go? What car would you drive? And what would you be listening to on the radio? Mm. the last part is the most difficult i think because i have such an eclectic music taste um do you know that that's why one of the reasons i, I just, include that because i have such an eclectic taste in music <laughs> i like um, to know what other people are listening to <laughs> yeah uh so um my wife and i are somewhat old souls um uh, for her birthday, actually, I got her a record player. And so we've been nice. getting some records here and there. And and um, I always thought, you know, I, I don't know what the difference is with the sound. And then actually listening to the record, I'm like, yeah, there is something different about the sound. It does sound a little better. Mm. Um, and the last two records we got um, was uh, Vivaldi, The Four Seasons. Yeah. And uh, My Chemical Romance, Welcome to the Black Parade. That's a contrast. So, very, very different, very contrasting. Um, I think as a kind of child of the the 90s and early 2000s, there's a soft spot in my heart for that that kind of punkish, uh, emo-ish yeah. uh, bit, like Blink-182 and all that. Um, so I'd have a really hard time with the music. Um, with Where to Go... 
I would choose one of three locations. I know that's not really the thing you were looking you can for. Actually, you can have as many uh, options as you want. It's, it's the conversation um, I like. Yeah. Uh, one, I would, I would really like to... Um, I'd, there's a swath in the Middle Ages that would be fun to see, be fun mm. to visit, um, that I would say... 1300 um and i'm not so picky with place um england france or italy would likely yeah. be the the areas bohemia would also be really neat um but that 1300 area would be really neat because it's it's the kind of height of the high middle ages and the plague hasn't hit yet yeah so I'm just safe enough that it's. I can see all the wonders of the textile factories. I can maybe avoid the Fullers and and their washing of cloth with cow urine, but maybe go see some some kind of the phasing out of knights and and some sort of like really live the the Renaissance fair mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's that. There's also um, I think. Uh, the height of the Roman Empire would be mm. a really fun place to see. Um, it wouldn't be very safe necessarily, but uh, just from a historical background, going to um, that early second century, mid second century, maybe uh, Rome really see the, the Colosseum at its height. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've been to Rome a couple of times, and I love it every time I go. Um, but seeing it in its element, I think, would be such a fun thing. If I, would, if I did that, I'd probably be driving a Fiat, um, <laughs> just so I could go through the streets. <laughs> um, for the, the, the other one, the, the first one... Um, not really sure what I'd be driving. Uh, but the last, the last location is a bit of an oddball. Um, and that would be before the younger driest period, about 12,000 years ago. Yeah. If I could go 15,000 years back, um, and see what civilization looked like, because there's more and more things coming out now yeah. of, of humanity's existence before, the last major ice age of the Younger Dryas period. Um, there's, is it, I won't say it's Serbia, but if it's not, Bosnia will get upset with me. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the Eastern European countries. Um, there's a pyramid that was found through uh, basically LIDAR scanning that it's one of the largest, it might be the largest pyramid in the world that I think they dated at 37,000 years old. Shit. And it's it's going back then like twenty thousand years. Like, what did we actually look like? Mm. And with the uh, global catastrophe that happened, that kind of right around the Younger Dryas period, um, when you have these mass extinction events, something happened that wiped out a lot of humanity and civilization. And um, I think one of the, the fun conversations with that is like, well, why don't we have um, like what? Why didn't we have more survivors from that? It's like, well, the people that survived were the, the hunter gatherers, the ones who knew how to 
survive on their own. So those are the people that then built up civilization again. Yeah. Um, but if I was at that period, I would like something a little more rugged. Uh, probably go for some diesel truck or something that could really handle the terrain. <laughs> One of those can go off. Can go off grid for a month. Yeah. Which I think if I was driving that at that time, just for sheer shock value, maybe some ACDC yeah. in the record, in the CD player. Just, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would Thunderstruck or something. Some, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, those those would be the three times. Uh, three, three cars would then be that some diesel truck, I'm sure. Um, a little Fiat. And I had no idea for the the... 1300s one um you can just be a horse yeah yeah it could just be a a horse i, I want to kind of blend in i think with that one so maybe a, maybe a horse um having a little walkman there with uh with some gregorian chant to fit in wouldn't be bad but i'd get, be getting enough of that anyway so um i, I think there's there's Again, that kind of fancy. If you show up at a Renaissance fair in a Lamborghini and blaring <laughs> some some death metal or something, um, Perfect. I think that'd be a, it's a fun image to think about. But at the same time, I'd, I'd probably find myself on the uh, tied to a pole with a bunch of wood underneath me pretty quick. Oh yeah, definitely. Fire you, you, yeah, you'd be you'd be there for a burning. So yeah, that 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 part would be fun. Um, I have to keep my head down. That's this has been brilliant. Thank you so much, so so much. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed it too. I'm I'm happy to come back anytime. And oh, definitely. Um, yeah, and uh, once again, yeah, Children of the Dying Hearth. Um, it's it's up uh on all major online retailers for ebook. Uh, I believe just Amazon has it for the hard copy, which is this uh yep. here. Um, you can also find that or any information about me, both uh, academic and fiction related on my website, martinraynelson.com. Um, I have uh, one of my short stories is up there as well. I want to be adding some more of that, um, but I won uh, an award for one of my science fiction short stories. Um, uh, and that's up there for free. Um, but you can find the book on there um, and hope to be back on your podcast again. Oh, definitely. We can definitely do this. We can definitely do this again. I've <laughs> really, really appreciated it. Thank you. All right. Well, let me know. <laughs> and there you have it. There is Martin. And as well as talking about many things, we were talking about his new book, One of Six, Children of the Dying Hearth. And please do check him out. Do check out the book. And I will make sure, as always, the links are in the description. And as always, Thank you for listening. Wherever you are from, whatever you believe, please do take care.